we love having our guests and I'm sure our listeners love hearing somebody else besides us. <laughs> Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet in the beautiful eastern Sierra. I'm Christopher. And I'm Stacy. And joining us, as always, is our producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning, Hi, Doug. folks. Hey there. Good morning. From a distance. Yeah. From, from a distance. Isn't that a song? I think it is. <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear about it. Um, but yes, listeners, as again, we are we are following the hashtag stay home mono and we are recording this with the help of Zoom, which I know everyone else has become a Zoom expert right now. And um, we're thankful that we have it because it lets us keep yes. podcasting. Yep, for sure. So the other things that have kind of changed while we're staying at home are how we have our adventures, hasn't it, Stace? Yes, just slightly. (laughs) (laughs) Just slightly. So uh, what we decided to do for this adventure, listeners, and we referred to this earlier in one of our earlier episodes, is on the library's website. So again, I should remind everyone, I'm the county library director and Stacey is the superintendent of education for Mono County. Um, and on the library website, which you can find at monocolibraries.org, if you click on the online library, you'll see a page that's called Cabin Fever Resources, because we know a lot of you are stuck inside, you're watching TV, you're doing work, you're reading books, and you're also just getting antsy to get back outside and do stuff. I know I feel that from time to time, right, Stace? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I don't know anybody who does it. And luckily, many of us on the east side can just walk out our front door and within five minutes be on, you know, out self-isolating on a nice, you know, country path of some sort. But there are a lot of other things you could you could uh, explore online. So we created this cabin fever page that has resources, online free resources that are either interesting or fun. And therefore, all ages, families, young kids, adults, what have you, um, can just explore this page. And it's proven to be quite popular. And one popular portion of the page, I'll say that five times fast, (laughs) is a section we called Armchair Traveling. And so it has uh, travel guidebooks, it has webcams from animal, from explore.com, animal webcams, webcams from the National Park Service. the Outside Online Magazine, Lonely Planet's YouTube channel. There's a, some sites that I love personally, which are marine traffic, where you can, you can see <laughs> real time where ships are globally across the world, which is just fascinating to me. Um, when that hospital ship was docking in Los <laughs> Angeles a few weeks ago, we uh-huh. could watch a dock real time on marine tracker. Very then, cool. And then my other favorite is shark tracker. So, you know, scientists go out and they tag great white sharks and then they mm-hmm. track them. And now anyone can see the, that information and see where all the great white sharks are that have been tagged at any point in time, which is probably useful information for those of you 
Amy to get back to a beach anytime soon. Definitely. It's so, and it's very fun to watch. It actually. is fun. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, you know. Yeah. You, you get surprised what you get interested in when you have nothing else to concentrate on and you just need to do something other than watch the news, right? Or the real housewives. Because <laughs> there's only so much of that you can take. <laughs> That Which, I can take. I was going to say, because for me, it's about 30 <laughs> seconds. I think your tolerance <laughs> is broader than mine. But one of the links that we have there is um, Yosemite's Facebook page, Yosemite National Park. And we, Stacey and I agreed, we kind of explore that Yosemite mm-hmm. through their Facebook page um, as our adventure this week. And uh, just to remind people where we are in Eastern Sierra and Mono County, in particular, we are the Eastern Gateway to Yosemite, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of right in the center of the Sierra Nevada in California. A lot of people come in from the West, but quite a few people come in and out through Tiago Pass, which is just near Mono Lake, which we talked about in our last podcast episode with Jeff McCulkin. So... Mm -hmm. Stace, what did you think of this? It was, I thought it was wonderful. And there's so, first of all, it's not just one website. It's, I mean, it's, it's like one, one place to go to get all this information about Yosemite and they have things to read about it and pictures to look at, but then they also have these wonderful videos and Mm -hmm. the, the videos have even through those, there's a very wide breadth and depth to um, what you can watch, and and I I loved the Rangers. <laughs> they have they have a series of for those of you with kids that are listening. If you're interested in this, one of the pieces they have is you can ask a ranger questions, and your kids or you can email the range the park rangers questions, and then they they answer them and they're 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 really funny because they're not the most tech savvy people <laughs> in the world and so there's it's it's pretty amusing to to watch them try to figure it all out and answer the questions and you look into the camera and things like that but I love that section you know yeah. um and those kids ask ranger series it's like i think it's every mm-hmm. thursday morning at 10:30 they go on to their mm-hmm. facebook page right. and they answer these questions and kids of course ask the best questions they do. right they yes. often ask stuff we as adults are afraid to ask mm-hmm. but it seems to be like themes like you know nature or i think this yeah. week that we're recording it is the green things you know right. stuff like that mm-hmm. to kind of just kind of give a little bit of a a focus to it. And of course, you know, many of our listeners will appreciate the the Junior Rangers program for the yeah. National Park Service is often one of the most popular things in any mm-hmm. park, right? So this right. feeds right into that. Yeah, it was, I thought it was really, really cute and a great opportunity, you know, with all of our kids um, doing distance learning right, right. now. Um, you know, this is just another interactive experience for them to have with another adult that they you know that somebody that they can glean information from so it's it's really fun and yeah you do Christopher that's a good point to make that you can access this opportunity to ask questions through Facebook right um another one of the videos that I loved was the April 2020 video this 
was newly posted and shows everything that's going on in the park right now. Um, and I just read a few weeks ago an article about Yosemite, how the fact that there are not people coming through, you know, it's really only a few hundred people that live in Yosemite Valley year round. And right. because there, it's only them, all these species of animals that they haven't seen in a long time are reappearing. And um, <laughs> so I loved the the April 2020 video because it really showed all the bears that are around and the foxes and the different species of birds that have come back. And um, what a great time to live there. I, and those <laughs> bears are just, it's just so cute to see them running across the meadow. You know, I've driven through the park many, many times on my way to San Francisco or, you know, the, the west side. And you always know when there's a bear nearby because the traffic stops and everybody in their cars has to stop and, and look at the take bear. a picture of the bear and look at the bear <laughs> and to see the, the plethora of bears that are out frolicking and playing around without the nuisance, what I'm sure we are to them of humans is, was, yep. is really fun. So I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that video a lot. Yeah, it's kind of like a slice of life that I guess we rarely get to see. And mm -hmm. I'm kind of jealous of the people who get to live there year round. You know, there's a post office there. Yeah. There's a visitor centers and, and old hotels and camps and what have you. Um, it really is an amazing place. Some of the stuff that I've enjoyed from their page is the behind the scenes stuff. Mm -hmm. um, which they also post yeah. regularly. And the one that they're, I'm excited for, it'll be up by the time this podcast releases, but it's it's going to come in the next couple of days, is how they maintain the trails. There's like over 800 miles worth of trails right. in right. that park, yep. which is a really varied, you know, there's the, the valley, which everyone knows, that's where all the photos are, Half Dome, El Capitan. Mm -hmm. But the yep. park is much, much, much bigger mm -hmm. than that that section. And you know, there's Tuolumne Meadows and Lake Tanaya and, and all those places around. And all those trails have to be maintained and right. you have to hike in. You can't use power tools. So I'm yeah. really just interested to see what work that goes into uh, maintaining this this treasure that we all appreciate so very much. Right. And uh, yeah, I, that's going to be a neat one, I think. And um, they just, the content on there is really... It's it's not only educational, but it's it's beautiful. It's beautifully shot. Even the yep. experience Yosemite video, which right. is one of the longer ones, it's about 15 minutes long. It's like you go to this, you watch it and you're in this Zen place. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's very calming and beautiful. And you know, it really watching all of these videos really made me think that. You know, I, I don't go, I don't access Yosemite enough, you know, living right. here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've camped there a couple of times, but, you know, you know, drive through there regularly, but I don't really get to take advantage of the beauty of it um, like I should. And this is a good reminder to do so once, once we can. 
<laughs> I don't think that's uncommon for people who live nearby, right? Mm -hmm. that, um, it's just like living in New York and only going to see the Statue of Liberty when someone comes to visit. It's, <laughs> right. you know, it's always there. And, and because it's always there, you just it's hard to make time to, to go. And plus, we yeah. have so many other places we get to go. Um, but we do recommend go to the Cabin Fever site, yes. check, click on the link under Armchair Traveling for Yosemite. It is a Facebook page, but like many organizations, the library included, when we all had to shut down and stay home, a lot of us moved to this virtual online programming almost overnight. So, you know, those videos that you described, the Kids Ask Ranger series, um, the behind the scenes, the, the webcams of nature coming in and out, there's also like downloadable coloring things and puzzles you can do with your kids. So it, and adults always learn as much of this stuff as the kids do too, right? Yeah, so we really absolutely. encourage you to spend some time on that, that page. You'll, you won't regret it. Definitely. And check it out. And, and all the other offerings that the library has, they're all, they're all free and they're all there for your use. So thank you, thank you for that plug. Of course. My pleasure. Take a deep breath, listeners. We'll be right back. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Information about children with this disease is limited, but they are known to have had mild symptoms. Many organizations are responding accordingly, depending upon their area. It's best to stay home and away from others, especially when sick, and continue following healthy hand wash guidelines, covering mouth and nose and not touching your face or high-touch surfaces. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces regularly, and for more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. We have arrived at the B section of our podcast, the book section. Hooray! We love and we always celebrate when we get here. We hope you <laughs> like it too. <laughs> but we do love talking about books. And, we do. Um, it's, a, it's a passion. So this week, we decided to each read a memoir, and Christopher, I'm going to kick it over to you to talk a little bit about memoirs and answer a question that I've thought about is, what is the difference between a memoir and an autobiography? Yeah, you know, and it's a question that uh, librarians and booksellers get a lot, too. Like, what's the difference between an autobiography, which... Um, isn't a, a term you hear so much about anymore. Memoir, right. I think, kind of gets used interchangeably with it now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think <clears throat> it's also what's happening now is, is memoir sounds like in a more approachable term. Like if you want to describe a new book that's coming out, if you say it's an mm -hmm. autobiography of so-and-so, it kind of may send a signal like of a big thick thing. I was born on a Tuesday <laughs> um, 10 years ago and then steps you through their life. Whereas a memoir sounds a little bit lighter, even though they often start with childhood as well. But where I come from is to me, a memoir is a portion of a person's life or a factor within a person's life um, rather than everything that they've been doing. So it might be a recollection of events. Um, it might be a portion of their childhood if they went through an issue as a child, or it may be a factor of what their career is, you know, what, is, what makes them a unique individual, or just an experience they went through. So um, a couple of my favorites mm -hmm. are um, All Creatures Great and Small. I was raised on the James Harriet books, and those will always mm -hmm. be 
um, a, a great memoir for me. I love Tina Fey and Bossy Pants. Which I was, love that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That book's probably almost a decade old now, but people always love that. And then there are some powerful ones that um, really speak to me. So Ismael Bea, who was um, an African boy soldier, um, described his, uh, his that very traumatic experience of being kind of basically kidnapped and constricted as a mm. child, as basically mm. a child to be a soldier in Africa. And he wrote this memoir shortly thereafter about how he came out of that. And boy, that was just really, really grabs you. And then mm-hmm. another one that people will be familiar with, fans of Call the Midwife on TV, um, which is that British series about midwives, <laughs> <laughs> um, is based on a real memoir by Jennifer Worth, who is a character in that TV series called The Midwife. And you can get it from a bookstore or a library and read it. It's really quite quite fascinating window hmm. into that. And all of those are much more focused on a very specific aspect of the person rather than like a catalog of their life. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So um, to me, that's what a, a memoir is. Does that sound... That does. It does. And it's it's helpful because, you know, I really was, I I don't know that I'd ever really thought about that question before we decided to read a memoir. But as Mm -hmm. I was looking and trying to see what am I going to read for this, I did think of, well, what's the difference between a a memoir and an autobiography? Right. um, You know, so that explanation really helps a lot because if we want to get started with the book that I read, it very much fits what your description of a memoir, because it's focuses on, you know, a time, a period of somebody's life and, um, you know, isn't, doesn't get mired in too many of the earliest details and, you know, this person is still alive. So, you know, we don't know what the next, pieces you know so um but i i read the book unorthodox um by deborah feldman and you know now it's a big it's kind of it's a few years old the book is a few years old but it's kind of come back resurfaced because netflix is doing has done an adaptation of of the story and even though the the Netflix series isn't exactly true to the memoir, it's she was involved in it. Deborah Feldman was in the creation of it, and and um, you know how it goes. But the story, the the memoir tells about um, the Deborah Feldman. She grew up in the. Satmar Hasidic community in Williamsburg, Virginia, or Williamsburg, Virginia, I'm sorry, in Brooklyn. And um, there are, I think, well, Christopher, you coming from New York, you know Mm -hmm. a lot about, you know, there's a fairly large area of Hasidic communities in New York City, in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, in the, in that whole tri-state area, there are different communities. Just like there are communities that are predominantly Asian or mm-hmm. Mexican or Cuban or Puerto Rican or Dominican, um, there's all sorts of different you know heritage groups that kind of you know have focused in different communities. And Williamsburg and Brooklyn has um, 
for a long time been known as as a a, a Jewish community with um, a lot of Hasidim, which are for our listeners, you might want to describe a little bit about. Yeah, so it's a very ultra religious division of the Jewish faith. And these people, you know, have very strict rules. Women's roles are very, very different than secular um, culture is. And this particular group, the Satmar Hasidic community, they are, they were developed or founded by Holocaust survivors who believed the Holocaust happened because as it was a punishment because mm-hmm. Jews had become secular mm. and were kind of turning away from their faith. And so they, they developed this, this community that has very, very strict adherence and interpretation of Jewish laws. And so they only speak um, Yiddish, which is, what I discovered was a hybrid of German and Hebrew and mm-hmm. Polish, like a whole bunch of different languages all mm-hmm. kind of smushed together. And um, they don't allow their members to assimilate in any way with uh, the outside culture. They're very suspicious of them. They don't, they really keep their uh, group tightly together. And she is she's raised by her grandparents because her mother has run away, has left this community and her father is mentally ill. So she lives with her. Yeah. She lives with her parents, her grandparents and her grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. And um, they, you know, they have very strict rules. She goes to a school for girls that stops when the girls are like 15 years old and shortly thereafter they're they have an arranged marriage and they're married off as teenagers and they're they're basically their expectation once they're married is to have babies mm-hmm. and raise the children and that's that's it they're not allowed to read the bible the the jewish bible they're not allowed to go to the library. They're not allowed to read secular books. Um, it's very, uh, you know, it's very tight. And so she, she gets married and she convinces her, I think she's 19 when she gets married and she convinces her husband, they move a little outside of the community where there are other people of her Mm -hmm. group, of their group, but uh, they move away from their grandparents and parents. And that's when she starts deciding that this is not the life. She has a baby and that's when she decides this is really not the life for her. And this is not how she wants to raise her son. So is it, is it because for the first time, really, she's living in an environment that is a little bit more exposed to other outside cultures because it is a very insular community. Yes. It, yeah. it, that's a really good question because actually it's not. She's kind of always had this feeling oh, okay. that she is not meant for this life. Right. And you know, even as a young child, she would sneak off and go to the public library. Like she would take a train and 
or a bus and go to this, go to a public library and check out books and hide them under her mattress and, um, you know, pray that her, her grandfather that she called Zadie, that, uh, um, that she, that he wouldn't find this, you know, because then she'd be in big, in big, big trouble. And, you know, the book also goes into detail about the, the, the rituals that, that this group follows. And it's really quite uh, extreme. And I certainly couldn't see how anybody could live in that kind of um, culture uh, myself. It wouldn't be, you know, it just is, you've got to be really committed. Um, but it was a, it was a really interesting, quick, read you know you just wanted mm-hmm. to see what was going to happen next and how she was going to handle things i i watched the netflix version oh, did you okay <laughs> um, i haven't me, seen it yet yeah when you told me you were reading it i didn't i haven't read the book yet i'd okay. heard about the story before and heard her interviewed um and i what struck me even having lived in you know dense urban areas that are mm-hmm. very multicultural for decades and understanding there are multiple cultures out there around the world that still operate in this kind of isolated insular way in a, in a very patriarchal controlling yes. way um, it struck me that yeah you know it's it's 2020 and this is still there mm-hmm. um, and I don't know whether that's uh a correct judgment to put on someone else's lifestyle or someone else, other culture's beliefs. I think some people probably, you know, find cult comfort yeah. in, that, yes. in that life. Um, and that's great for them, but it is, but to your point, it's kind of jarring to see, yeah. Oh my gosh, this isn't a hundred years ago. People still get, have arranged marriages. You know, I believe that she has to, when she gets married, she shaves her head and has to wear yes. a wig, right? Right. Right. Um, you know, which is very a normal thing that you see on the streets in, in New York. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it is also just kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and to know that it's this, that their laws are this strict, um, you know, although they, they do, they are allowed to travel. They did, right. you know, they, they do go other places, but um, you know, it's very prescribed how how they move about and who they're with. And, um, you know, women going places alone is not uh, right. part of their culture. You know, if right. women are going to go places, they need to be with other women. And, right. you know, one, one of, I, you know, like I said, she always kind of had this feeling that she was not meant for this life. But one of her um, one of her turning points was she gets she's a very good student she's very mm-hmm. smart and she gets a job teaching at at seventeen or sixteen mm-hmm. years old she becomes a teacher in this school uh, that she had just went to so mm-hmm. like she she graduated one day and then the next day she's there as a teacher. And she makes a, there's another young girl who's just become a teacher at the school and they form this friendship and, um, you know, kind of start taking some chances 
together out there going to, they go to an IMAX movie and, Mm. um, you know, they think they're going to see one movie, but they get it wrong and they go to see a different movie, which was very inappropriate for them to see (laughs) in their culture. And, um, but then this, this girl, her friend gets married and just starts having babies left and right and, and goes from this woman who she saw as a kindred spirit, right. you know, and she falls right, you know, the friend falls right back into the, the culture and just said, well, this is, you know, this is what my life is. Yeah. And doesn't yeah. have any, you know, disdain for it or, you know, she's just come to accept this is her life and she's fine with it. Um, so I, I, it, it was great. It I was, So you, you would recommend the book then? Oh yeah, definitely. It was really, and I haven't seen the, the show, so I don't, is it all, I saw one little clip mm-hmm. and it was uh, subtitled because they're speaking, I guess they're speaking Yiddish, yeah, yeah. but is the whole thing subtitled or just parts of it? Uh, the parts that they're speaking Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, in the Netflix, she goes to Europe and there's other parts that are subtitled because of other okay. languages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it is the, the, the Netflix adaptation i'm i was impressed by it and again it certainly was an eye-opener i i often recommend books like these to people because it does just remind you that there are people out there who live very successful and happy lives but in a very different circumstance yes we're in right and so it tests our own assumptions Mm -hmm. around well and and you you know you you learn about another culture it's not you know it's no different than reading about you know somebody who's lived their life in Mongolia or, you know, South Africa or, you know, uh, different places, even though this particular group lives within the bounds of the United States, they're, they just have a very different culture. And so it's about experiencing that. So what about you? What did you read? So um, I read a, a memoir by a similarly driven character because <laughs> <laughs> your, your protagonist is a very driven woman. Oh, yes. A, a very driven man. So I wrote a memoir that's coming out soon. It's called Eat a Peach by David Chang. Many of our listeners may recognize him from, he's now a TV chef. He's mm-hmm. uh, on, what was it, Ugly Beautiful or Ugly... I don't watch TV chef stuff, um, <laughs> but yeah, he's got a Netflix, a Netflix series. Um, and he's been on, you know, other PBS and other uh, TV shows with like Anthony Bourdain and, mm-hmm. and others. Others will, rem- will know him. If you've been through New York, he opened a restaurant in the early two thousands in a very um, kind of out of the way corner of Manhattan he found this small kind of rundown, unlikely space and opened a noodle bar called Momofuku, which means lucky peach in Korean, which is what his heritage is. Um, and very, I remember hearing about when that opened, um, again, just because it was kind of a unique offering in a unique space, it became through his hard work, it became one of the most popular restaurants in the city. Like it became a mm-hmm. destination place to go mm-hmm. to the village and, and find this restaurant and have some ramen basically. And kind of turned him into a cele- one of those celebrity chefs, right? This was. 
He his... did, yeah. He, he was smart. He he uh, ha- was working in other high-profile restaurants at the time in New York City, working with some amazing chefs and kind of going through that ladder process of becoming a career chef. You kind of do your time in different restaurants to learn from different individuals. And he got off of that ladder fairly quickly. It, it was burning him out, but also mm-hmm. he just wanted to do something different because he's so driven. So in his, I think he was in his late twenties, early thirties when he just basically bit the bullet and um, got this rundown space. He, he moved into like this little flop house apartment up the street <laughs> with hardly any furniture. He didn't even use mm-hmm. the kitchen in the apartment. He spent every waking moment at the restaurant wow. making this work. Um, and to your point, he grew he won awards. He won James Beard awards. He's gotten Michelin stars over the years and he's expanded into different restaurants around New York city and Mm -hmm. and Australia. I think there's one in Southern California now. Um, And and what makes this memoir so interesting to me is he's very upfront about how his personal mental health um, helped build out his success and also at the same Mm -hmm. time eat away at it. Um, you know, he's bipolar, he struggles with depression. Um, and he talks frankly about, you know, what it's like to be on meds and what it's like not to be on meds. And, um, you know, his natural instinct when he is successful, isn't to pause and enjoy that success (laughs) or just to kind of, you know, keep, keep the the motor running at that same level. His instinct is to do more and prove the next success, which is why he keeps opening restaurants. And what also keeps his restaurants so innovative is he's constantly changing the menu and his team Mm. is constantly changing the menu because there's always something different and new to try. Um, And in fact, frequently throwing out the rule book seems to be part and parcel of his restaurant's popularity and his approach. So it makes for enjoyable, enjoyable reading. He does uh, talk about, you know, what it's like to grow up as a Korean American, you know, his parents came from Korea. So he's that second generation. And the challenges that, that come out of that, you know, growing up in suburban Maryland, basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, his dad wanted him to be a pro golfer. So he became really <laughs> good at golf. Um, and then he moved, you know, he, he did a variety of other things. He studied religious studies in college because he, he was really intrigued by that. He got into the rat race and then decided to take a year off and go teach English in Japan, which is where he first wow. really discovered noodle restaurants. Okay. Um, and that was kind of what pushed him into this other path. Um, and, you know, it, he's very kind of open about his approach and his reactions to things. And one of the things he, he mentions, I'm paraphrasing because I'm not going to get the quote right, but he's talking about, you know, getting the recipe, the, the ambiance and the experience at Momofuku just right for the, mm-hmm. for the patrons who are coming in to eat. And it's a ramen and, and um, hot bun restaurant, basically. There's uh-huh. not, <laughs> there's not, a, not a big menu. Not a big menu. It really focuses on that kind of Japanese ramen heritage, mm-hmm. which he kind of, again, mixes with. Um, but he's like, you know, the Asians would come to the counter and they would eat the ramen and drink the broth, but white people would only eat the noodles. They would leave the broth. And, so, <laughs> and he understood that each had a validity. I mean, he had an opinion, but he understands that he, that's what's going to happen. And so he's like, how do I make the experience just right for every type of, of customer, which I thought was yeah. really quite interesting. Um, you know, 
Can I ask a question? Let me, is he, um, is this book, you mentioned that he's bipolar. Are there elements of like self-help in this, in his story, you know, where he tries to offer some, you know, guidance for people who are, have the same, you know, illness? I'm not sure that he would call or characterize it as guidance, but he definitely shares his experiences Mm -hmm. um, and challenges and mistakes along the way, right? He's very upfront with saying like, this is where um, depression got ahead of me, right? Mm -hmm. This is where it helped make me successful. This is where it, it harmed personal relationships. He was one of those stereotypical chefs who would just come in and yell at people for the smallest infraction, you know, on his team. Um, and he realized kind of as he was getting older and getting of an age where he's going to get married and have a kid that, you know, he needs to step away from that because that's unhealthy. And it's also just unhealthy for teamwork in a restaurant that needs to be successful. Um, and he realizes that's part of his mental illness is that, you know, his, his overreaction is perceived by other people in a different way than the way he's perceiving it. And he does, he does get a career coach, um, Marshall Goldsmith, who's pretty well known, um, to kind of do a 360 review for him mm-hmm. and kind of enlighten him on a few things. And he talks openly about that as well. And and the steps he takes to try and improve communication with his restaurant teams and what have you. So it's, you know, it's kind of informative from that perspective, but also what just comes through is this guy is fearless, you know, at every stage in his life. And as his kind of restaurant empire begins to grow and he's winning Michelin stars and, you know, being tapped to go on TV and to give talks and do educational seminars and stuff like that, you know, there's a lot on the line and he hires a 29 year old to be the CEO. You know, she had grown up in his restaurants Mm-hmm. Um, there was just that level of trust there. And he's like, that raised so many eyebrows because we had everything to lose, mm-hmm. um, but it's been successful. And so that's just one example of how he just kind of throws out the rule book um, wow. and goes for it. I won't talk more about, I don't want to give it away too much. It was due out in May, um, but because of the whole <laughs> COVID situation. It's been pushed off to early September. So it's an early fall release now, okay. but it's called Eat a Peach um, by David Chang. And um, I encourage you listeners to write it down and remember when it comes out in September, come to the library or go to Bookie Join or Spellbinders or your favorite bookstore and get a copy of it. It's a, it's a quick read. It's an enlightening read and it's an entertaining read for those of you, especially like me, who like to watch cooking shows. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. I've, <laughs> I've seen him on television a bunch and so I can't wait to read this. Well, I'll save my copy for you, but... Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) So, listeners, that's the uh, book portion of the podcast. So, take a breath. We'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now.
Welcome back, listeners. We're at the C section of our podcast, the conversation portion. That's always a fun part, right, Stace? Yes, we love having <laughs> our guests. And I'm sure our listeners love hearing somebody else besides Some, us. <laughs> somebody other, some different voice than ours. Yes. But it's always fun because we meet a new and interesting individual who, um, you know, interacts with the Eastern Sierra in a unique way. And also, mm -hmm. um, I'm just amazed at the different stories we've heard. So yeah. we are super excited today to have a bona fide children's author joining us, uh, Sarah Shearger. Um, Sarah, welcome. Well, hi. Um, you're joining us from the California coast, right? Yes, Ventura mm -hmm. County. Miracle of Zoom. We're all on Zoom these days. Um, so listeners, Sarah has um, written numerous um, really well-reviewed and well-received books. And so, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit, like, what is your path? What's your origin story? How did you become an author? And I know that's not what your day job is right now. Um, so you talk a little bit about that too. That would be really fascinating. Of course. So I think I've always been an author, to be honest. I feel like even as a little kid, I was making up stories. I was reading constantly. I was one of those kids that, you know, my favorite thing to do in the summer was to come to the library and come home with a huge stack of books that I would just <laughs> devour. Um, and even, I think I was maybe in second grade, my best friend and I decided you're going to write a book. And we spent all of our play dates crafting this book, which was sort of like loosely like the Smurfs, <laughs> but not really. And um, we actually, I mean, we worked on it for months probably. And we actually sent it to a publisher. My mom <laughs> saved our query letter in my little box of things to keep. And um, I found it all these years later. Um, and I think, to be honest, that I have gravitated towards books and writing in various times of my life when I needed a creative outlet. And so it kind of it weaved in and out of my childhood in times maybe when I was more lonely um, mm -hmm. or I was having, you know, drama with friends. Um, and then it kind of resurfaced back again when I became a mom. But there were lots of other parts of my, uh, of it all coming together. I think I, I gravitated to the arts in other ways when I was a a young a child and a young teenager, I was um, a very, I was an inspiration, I was a dancer. I wanted to be a ballerina and I poured all my energy into that and went away for mm -hmm. the summers and auditioned. And um, at some point I realized that wasn't gonna be the healthiest lifestyle for, for me. So I you know, poured myself into other things, um, went to college, got my master's degree and became a, a clinical social worker. So I provide counseling to mm -hmm. a range of, um, of clients, primarily in the school setting, but I have a small private practice as well. And I'm a mom. <laughs> so you're busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Life is busy, but I like it that way. It sounds like you're a creative spirit, though, and have been from a very long time, um, which I think is key to being a successful author. At least the authors that I've met seem to have a similar trajectory. Like it's almost something they can't help but do. Yeah, honestly, it, it feeds me. It's what makes me excited to get up in the morning. I really like having a project to work on and being a mental health professional, I sort of think of it as a coping skill. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a thing I can pour my energy into. Um, and I, it, I find it, it balances me having a project. In fact, when I don't have a project, when I'm in between, I feel a dip in my mood. So I just, I feel like having something really propels me forward. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm kind of laughing because Stacy and I just chatted about two books, two memoirs that were also similarly driven people, mm -hmm. like just compelled to be 
um, doing the career that they were doing. Can you talk a little bit about being a clinical social worker and working with kids? Yeah, um, that I also feel passionate about my, my work as a clinical social worker. I um, work with a wide range of students, but I have primarily gravitated towards students who used to be called at risk, but now I think a better term is at promise. Um, I love that lingo because these kids have so much potential. I feel um, so much room for growth and I see that potential in them. So one of the school sites I work at is a community school. So the students who attended have been expelled from their district and they're bused in from all over the county. And I just adore that population. Um, I just feel like they have so much potential and I, I love talking to them and hearing their stories. Everything so, I write is fictional, of course, but I do, <laughs> I do feel passionate about other people's stories. So as in your work, then you work for the, the county office of, of education because we, in our county office, we provide alternative education to similar students. Um, and I think those of us that work in that environment really have, have to have a heart for those kids. So you, you must as, as well. Is there anything specific that drew you to that population? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think my first couple of jobs um, out of graduate school and even during graduate school were in residential treatment centers. Mm -hmm. So um, I really enjoyed that population as well. And I actually, in one of my internships in graduate school, I was placed at um, uh, Youth Authority, California Youth Authority, which mm -hmm. is a place where um, they call them wards. Kids serve their time and they've been given a, quite a bit of time to serve. And I also enjoyed those settings, but I think I enjoyed the school setting maybe most um, because it's such a natural environment and it's such a healthy environment. And I just feel that we can do so much good in the school setting. It's a captive audience. You don't have to worry yes. about no shows, you know, you know, they're right there at school. And I think there's a big push in schools for social emotional learning, yeah. which I adore. Um, another project I have within the County Office of Education is I've been running a program in the Wainimi Elementary District. I think it's been 11 years. Um, there was a, a school shooting at one of our schools many years ago, mm -hmm. EO Green, and that was one of the sites that I, where I, so I started a program there targeting the sixth graders as they come in, um, you know, from elementary school mm -hmm. and they're bright eyed and eager and wanting to please and they haven't yet worked into seventh and eighth graders, <laughs> which is <laughs> a big change between those years. And so we provide preventative push-in counseling um, classroom education model in, in the sixth grade classrooms. And then we identify students that we think might benefit from more support and we provide some group counseling to them as well. And I, I utilize graduate students to help support that program. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That sounds really great. And yeah. yeah, we've got to hit them young. Get them while they're young. For I sure. think so. It's interesting. It's interesting what you described because that's also happening in public libraries around the country. Over the last decade or so, um, especially as there's been kind of um, you know, community efforts on wraparound services associated with the schools um, and helping students from all different angles, not just with their actual learning objectives. And there are libraries out there that have, have social workers on staff. One of my favorites is Queens Library in New York. They have a number of staff who have social work backgrounds that are hired to work with teens that come to the libraries every day after school, you know, and um, some of them need to do homework. Some of them just want to hang out, you know, and it, 
it helps a lot to have people who are comfortable working with kids um, in challenging neighborhoods who are going through a lot, <laughs> you know, and to help them have that rich library experience that you described earlier. Um, so uh, it's, it's just fascinating how that is happening ar around. So it's a little bit, that's a little bit of a divergence. I'll bring us back on track, mm -hmm. listeners. Don't worry. You're still listening to Oxygen <laughs> Starved. So, Sarah, you reached out. You you know Mono County. You come to Mammoth Lakes, right? What, what's that about? Oh, yes, we do. We come quite frequently. We are a skiing family. So my husband <laughs> is an avid skier. He's very good. And all four of my kids are, are quite skilled skiers. I think I'm the weak link. I, I can ski, but I cannot quite <laughs> keep up with all of them. Like they have to wait for me in different places <laughs> on the mountain. Um but yes, we come and ski and we, we love it up in Mammoth. It's our favorite place to ski. That's awesome. So you're up fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. And I would say that since we've been coming for so many years and I have four kids, many of those years I had a very small child with me that I had to entertain. And so I gravitated towards your beautiful Mammoth Library where I could spend time um, with the kids. I love the layout and I love the maker space. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> it's authentic. I love, I love your library. It's, it's a great place to go. Well, and no, knowing your level of skiing, Sarah, we can ski together. Okay. I'm, the, I'm the weak link in, in my family, too. You're quite upfront about that, Stace, aren't you? I, I, I don't hide it. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well go with it, right? It, yeah, you know, it is what it is. We can't be good at everything. <laughs> that's exactly right. Someone's got to be the safe one. That's right. So, Sarah, tell us about um, your book. Your Tell us about both of your books, the one that's out and the one that's coming out, please. I would, I would love to tell you about my books. And I write a range of books. I write picture books through young adults. So that includes picture books, an easy reader, um, middle grade novel, and YA. And the story that I am talking about right now is called Operation Frog Effect. It's published through Penguin Random House, um, and it's about eight students from diverse backgrounds. The book is written in eight points of view. One of the points of view is written in graphic novel form, and one is in movie scripts, some are in letters, one is in poems. And these students talk about their year with an out-of-the-box teacher that encourages them to be aware of social issues and their ability to make a difference in the world. Together, they learn to stand up and stand together, find their voices, take responsibility for their actions, and unite for a cause they all believe in. So that's this is Operation Frog Effect. It, it is a fairly recent book that I think it's your most recently published book. Yes. And it has gotten a number of really great reviews from major review journals like Booklist and Kirkus and other authors have blurbed you, and it's also up for some state awards. And many of our listeners may not realize a lot of states around the country have youth awards of their own, and that really helps um, people discover these these books that are coming out. So congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the process and the decision making? One, of the, I have a copy of the book. I'm holding it right now. <laughs> um, I was really struck by the different. Your, your choice of different voices in different kind of formats, that really just jumps out at you. What, what motivated you to choose that approach? I wanted a, a way to write in multiple points of view and make each voice distinct. Mm -hmm. So part of the different formatting was another way to make each voice distinct from each other. 
Um, it was a very interesting process to write it and to revise it. There was a lot of revision. I wrote the story and then I went back and I revised each voice one at a time, looking for consistency, word choice, format, you know, their backstory, making sure each character had their own character arc um, that aligned with the overall story, but continued on in an authentic way. And I also used a large number of what they call authenticity readers, people who read the different voices, because um, I was trying to write from a diverse background and I'm only me with my own background. I don't have the wide range right. of, of diversity that my characters do. It felt, it felt very important to me to have a diverse cast of characters because that's representative of California schools. Um, right. But it was also very important to me to write them authentically. So it was very helpful to me to have people read them and weigh in and give me information about what made sense and what didn't make sense and how to make it more authentic. It was particularly interesting. The, char the character Cecilia uses a little bit of Spanish in her mm -hmm. journal writing. Mm -hmm. And I used, I think, maybe seven different authenticity readers. And there's pieces of her section that are translated in Spanish. And it was fascinating to see how many different ways native speakers would translate those words. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. It was very interesting. And then I had to sort of select which, which way made the most sense. But it was a process. So did, how, oh, sorry, go ahead. Did, well, did you have this, um, these eight characters, did you have them in mind when you, you know, sat down, like these were the voices you wanted to portray? Some of them. My first draft, I think I had five characters and then it expanded over time. Mm -hmm. um, I was really excited to um, use the graphic novel voice because I see in my own children how much kids are gravitating towards graphic novels as a, a way to tell a story and how much you can tell through art. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a whole other layer of expression. And I, I liked the idea of using a character that conveyed a story in that way to bring in that element. I also wanted a character who struggled with some learning challenges. One of my own children has a learning disability and he's, he's very bright, um, but he has a challenge in writing his his thoughts out on paper. And so I wanted a character that also had a challenge mm -hmm. in writing, but was very bright and creative and had so many other strengths. And so this was a way that I could bring his story to light using the illustrations. Cool. I love the book, by the way. <laughs> yeah. well, well, real quick question. Did you do your own graphic novel illustration or did you have someone do these for you? Yeah, I don't have that skill set, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Gina Perry that did illustrations. And this is a, a not very common known fact about the publishing industry that authors and illustrators do not communicate with each other. Right. So I sent my manuscript to New York. It was, you know, purchased by a company. And then they, they paired me up with an illustrator who I think is fabulous. I'm so lucky to have her. But we didn't speak during the the illustration during the writing of the book of the illustrations when they were being created um after it was all over i contacted her to tell her how much i appreciated her work but we didn't communicate during the process all communication went through the editor <laughs> yeah i think that is a little known fact especially you know i think a lot of people are surprised there are great author illustrator combos you know in mm -hmm. picture books or where have you that kind of develop a a reputation, but they often start out as strangers, right? So what was it what was it like working with this team of authenticity readers? It's almost I would imagine as a creator, it might be like having a Greek chorus over your shoulder <laughs> <laughs> as you're trying to write. And working with editors and other readers of your work is probably challenging as 
as it is. Yeah, I, you know, I was so grateful, honestly, to have a team behind me because I really wanted to put this book out in the world in a way that I felt most confident would be authentic and received well. And I think, you know, as an author, it always makes me a tiny bit nervous to put something out there anyway, because you never know how people <laughs> will, will perceive it. But the more input, the better. So I feel like we've been um, kind of thought through all the, you know, all the different ways that um, the story could be read and perceived. So, you know, uh, that gets to the other point I wanted to ask you about, because I know you've written about why reading is important as well. And as librarians, that's something we're constantly pushing, you know, at, at all age levels, people need to be reminded that reading is important. And there are more and more studies coming out these years about the effects of reading on, on young people and young adults and adults and, and making them more content and more successful in life. So can you talk a little bit about your philosophy uh, in writing these books and, and why you want the kids to read them? Absolutely. I think there are so many social emotional benefits to reading books. And I think probably the biggest one is the cultivation of empathy. When you're reading a story, you get into the character's head. You feel as if you are that person. You're living with them. You're living through them. And that's the essence of empathy when you can feel like you're walking in someone's shoes. So it allows people to have a window into somebody else's life and their reality, their experience. I feel that that's what our, our society needs at this time is the ability to think about how other people are feeling and how, and how things are perceived through their eyes. So I just think writing is wonderful for everybody. And I also think writing is a coping skill, like I said before, and that's good for kids to do too, to be able to convey their own thoughts in any format, whether it's writing or drawing, graphic novels, um, poetry, any format is good for them. Yeah, um, I'm glad you said that. And I'm going to plug the library again. <laughs> we're excited. We just received a grant. And next year, we're going to be launching some out of school program specifically for teens on storytelling and the evolution of storytelling through different formats. So starting with oral and written and graphic novel form and digital form, just because you're right, there are so many different ways to convey meaning and convey a tale um, or a memoir or whatever you're writing, but the act of it, of creating it itself is, is equally important for people's development. Absolutely. And one exercise I suggest kids do when I do um, author presentations at schools is to take the same situation and write it from different people's points of views mm. and different styles, because that, I just, that's the essence, I think also of childhood and life is we are in situations, we see something from our own point of view, we don't see it from somebody else's. There's so much drama that occurs between children and schools. And if they can take a, a situation, a conflict perhaps, and write it from multiple points of view, they're practicing empathy. Yeah. I totally. love that idea. Mm -hmm. I'm going to so, recommend it to my daughter's teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Operation Frog Effect, which is out now. You have a new book coming out in August. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's called How to Live on the Edge. It's being published by Carol Rhoda Lab, which is an imprint of Learner Books. And it's a story about two sisters who have a strong family history of breast cancer in their family. Their mother passed away from breast cancer. Their grandmother passed away from breast cancer. They feel this sort of looming threat um, in their genes that, that it's lurking for them, that it may come for them. And there's, I sort of personify death in this story and create an imaginary character who um, who is the lurking death mm. behind my main character's life. And she kind of 
on occasion, she has conversations with this figment of her imagination. Um, my main character, her name is Cayenne, and she is approaching the loss of her mother um, and her vulnerability through a, a risk-taking lens. And again, this is sort of multiple points of, the story's written in one point of view, but I'm approaching it with two points of view, both sisters. They mm -hmm. react to their mother's <clears throat> passing and their risk in very different ways. My main character is a risk-taker and wants to think she might as well live life to the fullest and do everything she wants to do because she's going to die young anyway. And her sister is a cautious character who feels that life is vulnerable. She's going to be careful. She's not going to take risks so that she doesn't put herself in a more vulnerable place. So at the beginning of the story, the two sisters receive a gift from their mother, which is a series of video messages and letters that she left to them when they were very young when she passed away. As they go through the story, they're also listening to the messages, watching the videos their mother left, and it's changing them in multiple ways. Meanwhile, their aunt, who's been their pri primary caregiver for their entire lives um, since their mother passed, has discovered that she has the BRCA gene mutation, which is a mutation that um, makes people at higher risk for breast and ovary um, and ovarian cancer. So their aunt has to decide whether or not to do some preventative surgeries to ensure that she will be here to take care of her own children and to be there for these main characters. Um, as the story progresses, my main character has to grapple with the possibility that she may also have the BRCA gene mutation. So what, <laughs> ask you a, a challenging question, why this topic? I mean, what, what caused you to choose this really kind of, kind of dark and challenging topic to write about? That's a great question. So I have the BRCA gene mutation myself, and I discovered that I had it when I was pregnant with my fourth child. So for me, making a decision about my own health, um, my choices, my personal health choices was not a difficult one. I had four mm -hmm. children. I've been married for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I just want to be here for my kids. It wasn't a hard decision. Right. But I began thinking what it might be like to discover you had this mutation much earlier in life um, when I think as teenagers, we're also self-focused and uh, focused on our bodies and our appearance and how it might be to have to grapple with that at a very young age, perhaps compounded with the idea of losing a parent at a very young age. That's kind of how this story developed. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fictional story. My characters are fictional, right. but mm -hmm. this, this theme of our bodies, what it means to be a woman, what our various body parts mean to us, whether or not they're expendable, that is based on my own, my own experience. Is there an approach that you take in your mind, knowing that you're, you're writing this for teenagers and not writing it for 30 year olds? Like, you know, the language is different. How the sensitivity must be different too. Absolutely. It was really fun to write my main character as a risk taker because she, <laughs> she pushes against all the things that I believe. I, I'm much more <laughs> like her sister. Her sister's character <laughs> is cautious and careful and wants to, you know, uh, take every precaution. That's much more like me. But I wrote this through the voice of a risk taker who doesn't care and just wants to do what she wants to do and have fun. And so that made it, I think that makes it digestible to a teenage reader because mm -hmm. it's probably more where they're at. And um, I think it allows me to push against all the things that I, I hold dearly. And I loved having the, her sister character. Her name is Saffron. They're named after spices because <laughs> um, <laughs> her mom loved to cook. So the sister character is able to push against my main character and share her own thoughts and her beliefs. So having these two characters play off each other 
allowed me to approach this from multiple sides. And I, you know, I have my own, of course, personal life and health choices that I've made, but I, there's such a range of decisions people could make. And I want people to just consider it. Not that one decision is right or one decision is wrong. It's just taking a moment to think about our future and what we can do to um, be as healthy as possible. I also think this, this particular field of medicine is growing in leaps and bounds and the recommendations they may, may make in the future may be quite different than the recommendations that I was hearing, you know, um, five years ago when I was mm-hmm. in the situation myself. Right. Wow. So did you have authenticity readers in, as you were writing this book as, as well? I did have a couple of genetic counselors read it because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure I was portraying the gene accurately and the scenes that, with the genetic counselor accurately. So they did read it. Okay. Mm. That's great. One last process question, I promise, because um, it just fascinates me. You're an author. You have a website, and we'll put your website up on our show page for people to go and explore. But you have written quite a number of books across all youth age groups, from picture books to teens. So what shifts do you have to go through mentally to write for those different age groups? Because people may not realize that the choices in vocabulary and the level of vocabulary and how you present subjects and sentence length and all those kinds of things come <laughs> into play. It's not easy just to go out and write a, a children's book, is it? So how do you, how do you shift from, from age group to age group? It's a really good question, too. Um, I think that as a writer, I'm motivated by the idea more than the format. So mm. as I'm going through my life, all of a sudden an idea pops in my head and I think, wow, that would make a great picture book. Or that would make a great young adult novel or that would make a great easy reader. Um, so I think at, once I get the idea in my head, then I have to dive into that uh, format and try to figure out how to convey that story in, in the right way. And a lot of what I do is read mentor texts, other texts, other people's work to help mm. get my creative juices flowing and to see the different ways that people are approaching stories and books and picture books is a great example. If you go to the library and pick out 10 different picture books, you'll see 10 different ways of approaching a story. Um, and yet they all have some commonalities in them that are important to, to understand in order to get it right. Definitely. I, I personally recommend people, adults going and looking at picture books and just browsing them because mm-hmm. many of them are really compelling stories and they're beautifully illustrated and um, enjoyable. <laughs> and people don't know how hard it is to write a picture book. That might be the <laughs> hardest type of book to write because you have so few words. Right. And you want to accomplish so much. And um, I mean, they're, they're challenging to write, but fun. So, so this book that is coming out in August is called How to Live on the Edge, on the edge. right? And it's for teens. What are you working on now, if you don't mind sharing? I don't mind sharing. I won't share too many details. I've got something <laughs> in the works that's in the picture book category that I can't talk about yet, but I'm very excited about. And <clears throat> it's another story with a fun character who, and there's a, an overlay of social emotional learning, which is a passion of mine. So. Yeah. I'm very excited. You know, there's a, a lag time of about two years between when a book uh, gets a contract and when it's ready to come out, for, especially for picture books. Mm-hmm. So this one will, will not be ready for quite some time. So Sarah, with all you've got on your plate, four kids and writing books and your clinical practice, do you have time to read? And if so, do you have a favorite book or what are you reading now? What would you like to share with us? I would love to give some shout outs for some fun books. And I would say 
it is hard to fit it all in. I, I <laughs> just work part-time for County Office of Ed, but it is still hard to fit everything in. That being said, I love to read and I want to give some shout outs to some of my favorite books that I've read recently. Um, one of them just came out. It's called Efren Divided by Ernesto Cisneros. And that is a book that I feel should be in every classroom in the country, every library in the country. Um, I'll read a little, a little bit about the book for you. Efren Navas Ama is a superwoman or sober woman named after the delicious Mexican sopes his mother often prepares. Both Ama and Appa work hard all day to provide for the family, making sure Efren and his younger siblings, Max and Mia, feel safe and loved. But Efren worries about his parents. Although he's American born, his parents are undocumented. His worst nightmare comes true one day when Alma doesn't return from work and is deported across the border to Tijuana, Mexico. Now more than ever, Efren must channel his inner sober boy to help take care of and try to reunite his family. That book, I think, has gotten four star reviews. It is amazingly written. It's a story with heart. And talk about compassion and empathy. Every child needs to read that because it tells the story of so many children in our country. Yeah. I think it's crucial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and we have a lot of students here in Mono County who that is their reality every day. And certain times it's more than others. You know, if we hear that ice is in the area or um, things like that, you know, they, they have so much worry and anxiety that if, while they're at school, their, their parents or their grandparents might be taken away. So, but it's very, a very real story for our, a lot of our kids. It's timely and it's important. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, at some point these children are going to be voting and helping us make our laws. We need people to understand the experience of, yeah. of all humans so we can make decisions that protect people. Um, I have two other books I'll mention, but I won't go in as much depth about. I really like Written in the Stars by Aisha Saeed. Um, and it talks about what it might be like to be in an unwanted marriage, an arranged marriage against your will. And The Bridge Home by Padma. And again, I'm not going to say her last name right. Um, Benka Traman. It's a beautiful story. She um, She's a poet, but she writes it in, their, in a narrative form. And it's a, a beautiful story about four determined homeless children who make a life for themselves. Um, what are the reading levels of these three titles? Are oh, they good like question. Young kids? Uh, yeah, so Efren Divided is middle grade. The Bridge Home is also written in the stars as a young adult novel. Great. Great. We will put all of those on our show page. Yay. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much. Yeah, um, it's This has been great talking with you and learning about you and hearing about your books, which, you know, we can't recommend strongly enough for our readers and we hope to see you in person the next time you come to Mono County and um, if you're visiting the library or it's on the ski slopes, wherever that is, <laughs> we'll look forward to that and hope you'll come talk with us again sometime. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And thank you, listeners. We appreciate you being here and joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast. Please remember, if you're enjoying our podcast, to subscribe, take a minute, leave us a review and a rating. We really appreciate that. It helps with the visibility of the podcast. You can also find us at um, on Instagram at O2Starved, our website, the Oxygen Starved podcast, and we hope you will 
let us know what you're thinking and how we're doing so we can keep getting better. Thanks so much. Stay safe, stay healthy. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Starved. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. 